Okay, this morning is December 16th. It's 2007. And I have maybe the most unorthodox message that I've ever preached, and that's always fun for me. It'll be called Santa Saves Christmas. Now, I'll surely be denounced as people see this title, and they'll say, Eric's gone off into weirdness. He's not preaching the gospel anymore. He's preaching about Santa Claus. Really, the heart of what drives this in me and the reason we dismiss the kids is there's a conflict in serious Christian homes about most of our holidays. And one of them is Christmas. You ever driven down the road and you looked into a yard and you see this beautiful scene that we've all come to know as the nativity and usually there's a baby Jesus in it. If you're watching Will Ferrell movies, he's 8 pounds, 11 ounces and a golden diaper, baby Jesus. Those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, good, you're blessed. But then there are shepherds and there's uh, all kinds of animals and hay and straw, and it's a very Middle Eastern scene. And then on the other side of the yard, you got this fat guy Dutch, uh, dressed in Dutch-type clothing, bowing usually, or maybe with kids around him with gifts, and trying to reconcile how these two major themes can even remotely be associated, a guy in winter clothing with elves and reindeers and 8-pound, 11-ounce baby Jesus in the manger, uh, is difficult. And in my early Christianity, I struggled on all sides of this coin. There are times I refused to have a Christmas tree because I saw it as pagan. There are other times when I dressed as Santa for the kids. The reason that I asked the young people in the church to leave this morning, so I'm going to teach you a little bit about historical St. Nicholas. But before we get there, I want to show you the church background that he was born into. The reason I asked the children to leave is I think it's beautiful when children have a little bit of mystery about this season. I think it's neat for them to have something to look forward to. And if we, as God's ambassadors on the earth, learn to see good things in the world around us and point them out, there's no harm in that. But to the corrupt, all things are impure. You'll find a fault in everything that you look at. Most of us drive cars made by Buddhists, and that doesn't seem to bother us. We have dollar bills with pagan symbols on them, and that doesn't bother us. But a fat guy in a red suit is mortally offensive to some Christians. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that this morning and show you some ways in which St. Nicholas is a redeeming quality in Christmas. This... Uh, this story starts a very, very long time ago, and I'm going to skip through history a little bit. David, the first thing that you want to write on the board is Romulus and Remus. That'll be our first category, and that's all you have to write. There's going to be eight or nine of these, eight of these. Romulus and Remus are two mythical figures, and it's important for you to understand that I'm not ignorant. I don't, don't believe that every mythical figure that is ever said to have existed actually existed, but what a country, what a nation or an organization says about themselves and their origins is indicative of what their values are. And when Rome came into being, the predominant story about its birth had to do with Romulus and Remus. They were supposed to have lived between 771 B.C. and 717 B.C. So between the 7th and 8th century before Christ. That's a long time before Jesus. What's interesting about these guys is their mother was named Rhea Silva. This was a god in the Roman pantheon, and she was a virgin goddess who happened to have been raped by another god 
named Mars, who was the god of war. After this woman was raped and subsequently killed, buried alive, her children were left orphaned. Romulus and Remus were supposed to be the offspring of the god of war and a virgin mother goddess who was killed. And after they were orphaned, they had no way to provide for themselves substance. And so a wolf nursed them. Now that's silly, isn't it? I mean, at least it's not naturally occurring on a regular basis. But an entire civilization of people that ruled the earth for more than a thousand years believed that this was their history. Some believed it ardently, and some just accepted it like we accept George Washington chopped down a cherry tree. Understand that it may not be true, but it's a story of origin. I find that interesting because of some New Testament comments that occur later. Children born and nursed by a wolf. As we move on from that time period, Rome developed something. They developed a power and an office called the Caesars. This word's been used in various languages, translated different ways. When you study about Russia's history and see czars, that's uh, in the etymology of the word, that's a similar word. But it basically meant rulers. And the most famous of all of Rome's rulers is a guy named Julius Caesar. Most of you in school studied this in one of William Shakespeare's plays. Julius Caesar was a dictator. And in 44 B.C., now he was a dictator who was given powers by a senate, but in 44 B.C. he was assassinated. And almost everybody's familiar with that story. A friend named Brutus sticks him and says, A2, Brute? And this has become literary classic. What most people may not know is that he was a real historical figure and that people immediately following his lifetime worshipped him as a god. See, many Roman poets began to write in the year that he died about a comet that they saw in the stars that they said was Julius Caesar ascending into the heavens. And it began, became commonly thought that he was a god because his sign had been seen in the heavens. The reason that's important is after Caesar's death, there's some time period of skirmish and battle. And a young man named Octavian, who is the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, comes into power. The Senate appoints him the powers of emperor. He was the people's choice. Some of the most notable things about Octavian is that history doesn't record his name as Octavian. When he became the emperor, he took on a new name given to him by the Senate. The August One, Augustus, meaning the revered one, the great one, the enlightened one. More than that, he began calling himself the Son of God. And he paid people. As a matter of Roman political power, he paid people throughout the provinces which Rome ruled to call him the Son of God and to write about him and to put on murals, which were the political billboards of the day, the Son of God. And poets began to sing about him and write songs about him that were the commercials of the day. Their songs sang of peace and joy on the earth because the Son of God had come to the earth. Does that sound familiar to any of you? 
The most interesting part about that is that in those songs, they called it universal peace and joy to the earth. Remember that word, universal. During 19 B.C., a king who was appointed by Rome in Israel named Herod built a temple for Augustus, for people to go and worship Augustus. It was in a place called Caesarea Philippi. I've been there twice, stood there, took pictures of the site of the temple and the placards that display it. This is the place where Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? In the backdrop, there was somebody else's name carved into the mountain called the Revered One, the Son of God, meant to bring peace and joy to the earth. And Jesus chose that spot to ask, who do men say that I am? If you're interested in that, I'll show you after the service the actual picture of that site. He had a priesthood that he employed. The coffers in Rome paid for his priesthood. One of the things that the priesthood was most known for in the Roman world, because they had many, many gods, was that if you wanted your sins forgiven, you could go to Augustus' priesthood and buy forgiveness. That's a little interesting coincidence, isn't it? It gets better than that. There's a slogan in his day. They put it actually on coins, which exist today said, there is no name under heaven except Augustus by which men can be saved. Those of you who are Bible students recognize that the New Testament writers applied that to Jesus. said, there is no name except Jesus by which men can be saved. This would be the equivalent of walking out and seeing John Kerry for president and scratching it over and say, Jesus Christ for king. Except that John Kerry never held an office like a Roman emperor the most powerful figure in the land. You're going to like this the very best. When Augustus came into power, he changed the Roman calendar. And in December, when he was born, he instituted 12 special days called the Days of the Advent of Augustus. And for 12 days, Augustus had people celebrate, you got it, his birth. Hmm. How about that? Well, why would I even mention that? Why is that important? We're so long from Augustus, does anybody really even remember? Well, in the second chapter of Luke, you will hear over and over and over for the next few weeks that it was in the reign of Augustus that Jesus, called the Christ, was born. God could have had the Son of God born on the earth at any time in history he chose. And he waited till a pompous Roman emperor, who was the descendant of somebody who was nursed by wolves, to be born who already claimed that title. So that there would be a stark contrast for all mankind to see. Those who dwelt in Roman palaces, by the way, Romulus and Remus, they didn't have such a neat relationship. Romulus killed Remus. You know what he killed him over? Anybody got a guess? A religious dispute. How about that? Romulus killed Remus over a religious dispute. See, there's always been a spirit in Rome that killed people over religious disputes. Augustus was an emperor in that era. And Jesus, called the Christ, was born in vastly different circumstances. When you see a nativity, you need to contrast it 
with the marble floors of the Roman Senate, with a powerful political campaign that tried to convince the world that an emperor was the son of God. Jesus ran no political campaign. He was not born on marble floors. He was the most humble of men, the kind of man that others might hide their face from, somebody who was rejected and despised by men, as opposed to someone who had marble busts of him made and sent out all over the empire. One demanded worship of him or there would be penalty. The other required nothing except the love and loyalty of people who saw him as special. It's in this setting that Jesus was inserted. We're going to read to you a couple of scriptures today, and then we're going to go back to our history lesson. But it's worth understanding the error in which Christianity takes place. Not error, but era. I was raised in the south part of the United States, and much of my English is poor English. You'll be in Acts 19. The followers of the man who wore the title Yeshua, which means God's salvation, Yeshua HaMashiach, that is God's salvation, the Messiah in Hebrew, were all guilty of treason in the eyes of Rome. I had lunch with a dear friend here this last week who reminded me Jesus was actually killed for treason. The Romans were willing to put him to death because he claimed to be a king. And others claimed that about him, and Rome tolerated no kings except that which they installed. The unique problem with followers of Yeshua, the Hamashiach, was they refused to bow their knee to Roman power. They refused to call Augustus the son of God, or Diocletian, or Domitian, or Nero, or any of the other wicked men that followed. They were willing to even give their lives for the fact that they believed that Jesus was the rightful king. Paul is preaching the gospel in a place called Ephesus. David's number two on the board would be Caesar's, and number three is Paul, Ephesus, and Artemis. And in this place called Ephesus, and by the way, we don't have a world map in here today, I only have maps of Israel. But if you were to go west from Israel... So you hit the little boot that is called Italy, and then you made a right and went back to the nearest coast, you would be in modern-day Turkey. And modern-day Turkey is the same region that ancient Ephesus was in. This is Ephesus, Paul, and Artemis. So in Acts 19, I want to read you a story of something that happened in Ephesus to begin to paint this picture. You all with me in Acts 19:23? It says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Many of you may have been in church all of your life and never even heard the term the way. Christianity started as a sect within Judaism. They were Jewish people worshiping the Jewish God who had claimed to find the way of God's or the method of God's salvation. How interesting that Jesus' name literally translated is Yahweh's salvation. They were saying, we found the way, the manner in which God will save us. The man, Jesus. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. 
And you see in here, this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and practically in the whole province of Asia. What is Demetrius upset with? This man preaching the King Jesus is doing harm to his religious business. His religious business is that he makes idols for the people to buy. And if all of these Christians, these Jews following the Christ, begin saying there is no real God, there is no real king except Jesus, it did harm to his religious business. He said that man-made gods are not gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the providence of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. If she really were a god, would there be any real threat that she could be robbed of divine majesty? See, men that build religious systems and extort people based on those religious systems are always worried about being discredited. Because it's a sham. And if the people see through the sham then all of their authority and all of their power is gone. How interesting that Christianity had no political slogans, had no political commercials, nothing to draw men's interest to it except the changed lives of its believers. There was no sham. There was nothing put forward to seduce the people. There are only the words of a humble carpenter. And every time we write a check, today, every time, every time we wake up and say, what is the date? We give testimony to the fact that not Augustus, but that humble carpenters changed the world. Demetrius is very upset because his political monopoly is about to be destroyed, his religious monopoly. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but his disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the providence, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Isn't it amazing how some people's religion will cause them to hate anybody who dissents from them? Why are his disciples begging him not to go into the theater? Because they're fearful that the people in the theater will tear him apart. There are political machines all over this planet that have been tearing apart dissenters for millennia. And yet, the cry of the lost man is all religions are basically the same, really. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted at him in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis, God of the Ephesians. Now, I have a lot to say about Artemis, but the first is she was known by a Roman name as well, Diana. And Diana had a fortress right outside the Jewish temple overlooking it. A constant reminder to the Jews that they were under the power of the Roman Empire. The high priest's garments that had been sacred to the Jews were held in the temple of Diana because the Romans wanted to show that their God had subjugated 
the Hebrew God. But Artemis in Ephesus had a temple, a temple you can visit today. Out of all of the pantheon of Greek gods, she's the only one that had a celibate priesthood. How interesting do you find that? The only one who had a celibate priesthood. And if you go back through the layers of geological history, you can even find a time in which the words Artemis were scratched off of the base of the temple and a new virgin mother goddess name was put there instead. And the statues that Demetrius fought to build suddenly included a baby boy in the mother's arms. Where did all that happen? Ephesus. That's an E, by the way. Ephesus. In Acts 20, you can flip a page, starting in the 25th verse, Paul has a mandate from the king of kings to get to Jerusalem. Because once he's in Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over to the power and authority on the earth, the Caesars. He will make an appeal to Caesar and will go and present the gospel to Caesar himself. But while still in a place called Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, the 25th verse, he says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. The difference between the followers of Augustus and Nero and Diocletian and Domitian and all of those guys and the followers of King Jesus is the followers of King Jesus did not come into contact and love with him based on an entitlement program, based on what political favor might be done. They felt an inward change that caused an outward reaction. They knew in their hearts something that could only be revealed by the God of heaven, that Jesus, the humble carpenter, was the Christ. And they were willing to go even to the point of death for that. None of the Caesars had people who were willing to die for them without promise of political favor and gain. Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders says, you're not going to see me again, so there's one more thing I need to tell you. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock with which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word is bishops or pastors. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. What will they do to the truth? Distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard and remember. goes on to say, remember I warned you, day and night with tears. Where did that happen? Ephesus. Modern day Turkey. As we move on through these Caesars, there are too many to name, but we get to a time period in history, Dave, this would be your fourth one, of Diocletian and Constantine. 
All you got to do is write Diocletian and Constantine. Diocletian reigned from 284 A.D. to 305 A.D. He was a soldier. He was good at what he did. Soldiers give orders, and they're obeyed. But he was brutal. And there was a civil war following his death. And during this civil war, generals in Rome began to fight for power. And what are you really fighting for? You're fighting for the right to be considered an emperor of the world, a god. Now, the cult of emperor worship was different at various times. Probably the worst ever was a guy named Domitian. He instituted games where they burned Christians alive. That had gone on under many emperors. But he claimed his seat, his neo-chorus, was in a place that is today Turkey, and then Ephesus, and was the seat of God on earth. And he put under him the other gods of the Greek pantheon to show that he was the supreme god. But we're not talking about Domitian now. We're talking about a guy much later in history called Diocletian. Diocletian followed a long line of emperors who demanded worship and killed Christians. You need to understand this. At this point in history that we're talking about Diocletian and then we're going to get to Constantine, for 300 years, one institution on the planet, one, the Roman institution, had been killing Christians. Their blood was the mortar that built the Roman Empire. Any time there was a problem in the Roman Empire, we blamed the Christians and killed them. Nero tarred them and lit them as human torches. And there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that will record many names written down through history of men and women who did not shrink back from death but proclaimed Jesus is the only king I will serve. So Diocletian comes along from 284 to 305, and there's a two-year civil war following his death because he was so brutal. And one of the soldiers that comes to the forefront and grabs the reins of the empire is Constantine. History records him as Constantine the Great or Constantine the Conqueror. I think recently the guy who was in all the Matrix movies did a movie where he was Constantine. Not Constantine the historical figure, but Constantine, a spiritual warrior. wonder what spirit birthed that idea. Constantine reigned from 307 to 337 A.D. It's interesting. He was not an Italian. He was not Roman. He was Roman because Rome had conquered the province of Gaul, which is today France, and his parents were French. And the gospel based on the blood of the martyrs, had made it as far as France. And Constantine was reported to have a mom and dad who were converts. So Constantine finds himself in a battle, maybe the most famous battle in all of Roman history as far as Christian history is concerned. It's called the Battle of the Mulvian Bridge. It happened in the year 312. And Constantine was particularly worried about this battle because if he lost it, he would lose his control of the empire. And so as a precautionary measure. He prayed to all of the Roman gods, but didn't feel any sincere peace. And he remembered mom and dad have a god that's different than the other gods. And he prayed to the Christian god. History's a little vague on how sincere his conversion was. I have a 
very strong feeling, which will become evident as we go. But after praying, he saw in the sky a flaming sword upside down in the shape of a cross. In the Latin words, hoc signio victor eris, under this sign, go and conquer, appeared, at least as he tells the story. So for the first time in history, Christianity has a new symbol. The crosses we have hanging from our ears and around our necks. Prior to that, it was thought of like an electric chair, a bloody means of capital punishment. He wins his battle. He worships Roman gods all of his life, right before he dies, as kind of an insurance policy. He accepts Christian baptism, the monks that he's dying, and makes a proclamation that all the bones of the apostles, wherever they be found, be brought, brought to Rome where he was ruling, so that if there really was a resurrection, he would rise among them and they would all be facing him as the greatest of the apostles. Do you see a stark contrast between men like him and men like Jesus? I do too. In 3.13 though, because under this sign he had conquered, he declares something. I'd like Rome to quit butchering Christians. In fact, I want you to tolerate them like you would any other religion. Wouldn't you think that would be a good thing? Christianity has always prospered and thrived where it was persecuted. Do you know why? Because when you look to your left and your right, right now in this room, when you look to your left and your right, there is only one way to know who will stand with you in a battle. Everybody says they would, but how do you really know? Well, when there's the presence of a battle. And see, prior to this, to be called the word Christian or follower of the way, or a believer in Yeshua, the Hamashiach meant that you could be thrown into an arena at the rate of 50,000 a year. So people didn't lightly call themselves Christians. But if it's tolerated, if there will be no persecution for being a Christian, something else happens. I mean, the Romans were used to whatever the emperor wanted. We did. Whatever was politically expedient... We did. That's how we get our entitlements. In time, Christianity not only was tolerated, but it became the official, universal religion of Rome. Except today we don't use the word universal. We use the word Catholic, which means universal. There were these church councils that happened. Now, prior to this, apostles, because of Ephesians 4, had made all theological decisions for the church. In the book of Acts, you see in the 15th chapter, there's this strain and this struggle. What do we require of Gentile converts? Well, I don't know. Let's ask the apostles in Jerusalem. But now we have a change in history that is occurring. All of the world is subject to a Roman Empire, and now the head of the Roman Empire is declared to be a Christian and Rome is Christian. The year before, murdering Christians. Today, we're good. We're Christians. Because we've conquered under this sign, the sign of the cross. So they hold church councils to decide theological problems. But the councils are governed by Rome. 
not Jewish apostles. And in 325, we have the first council. The Council of Nicaea. You know where that is? Modern-day Turkey. You know what they were fighting about? Is Jesus really God? And how is he God? How interesting that that would be the first real struggle and that would be the place that would occur. What did Paul say would rise up from among the people? Ferocious wolves. I'm sorry. Who nursed Romulus and Remus? There is a spirit that we have been warned about would put on sheep's clothing. It itself is a wolf, but it would begin to be dressed like sheep. What were God's people called? Oh, so we have a spirit of a wolf that looks a lot like one of God's sheep. How about that? Well, by the year 431, these councils had progressed so far that we're not just fighting about, is Jesus God? But get this, in the city of Ephesus, where Paul gave that speech, where they wanted to tear him apart, where he warned the pastors to be good pastors, they declared something for the first time in history. Mary is the mother of God. That had never been accepted into Orthodox Christianity before 431. It just so happens that the Temple of Artemis around the same time, the words Artemis get chiseled right off and the words Mary get inscribed above it. Now, Demetrius was not alive any longer, but apparently the same spirit that wanted its trade was alive. The Roman calendar in December had emperor worship. We discussed that, right? Under Augustus, the revered one, the Son of God, in December, for 12 days we'll celebrate his birth. But they also worship Saturn. Now, if you have a car that is Saturn in here, they're good cars. But long before GM made a product called the Saturn... Saturn was considered to be a harvest god. And most of the people that Rome conquered had harvest gods and they worshipped in December after gathering all the harvest. So when Rome conquered somebody, they said, oh, well, the Roman calendar provides that we have festivals to our harvest gods during this time. And the emperor who's the son of God. It's okay because we'll worship our gods, but they'll think we're worshipping theirs. There was also a god named Mithras that they worshipped. They borrowed him from the Persians. His name is the god of light. The first time that the word Christ Mass, Christmas, was ever mentioned, ever in history, written anywhere that's recorded, it appeared on a Roman calendar, you guessed it, the month of December, on the 25th day in the 336th year. 336 years after Jesus was born, somebody said, you know what? He is born in December. Really? Roman calendar, number five. He is born in December. Do the Gospels record that he was born in December? No. In fact, most Bible theologians say he was either born in October or he was born in March. Been a debate for a long time. You know when no one thinks he was born? December. But why worship, why have a Christ Mass in December? Because the political authority had always had festivals in December and they had always venerated somebody as the Son of God in December. Now we're just going to change the name. That practice is called syncretism. This revelation, your next one, by the way. Oh, hey, they'll get it. Your next one is the sixth point. 
and it is an anti-Christmas backlash. This revelation was withheld from the world. Do you know why it was withheld from the world? The Bible that was immediately written in Hebrew, maybe in Greek as well, the most New Testament scholars say Greek, was translated into all the languages of the world during the lifetime of the apostles and their disciples. But during the time that Constantine came into power, the Roman Empire declared there to be only one language that was holy. Surely it was the language that Jesus himself spoke, right? Nope. It was Latin, the language of the Roman oppressor. See, Greek was not holy anymore. Hebrew was not holy anymore. Now it's Latin. So the whole world had to learn Latin to learn what God's Bible said because it was illegal to have a Bible in any other language. It was illegal to hold the church service in any other language. Until 1869, it was still illegal in Italy to own a Bible in any language other than Latin. When Jesus said the truth will set you free, Jesus taught truth. But the principle is true about all truth. Not being ignorant about a subject will change your views of any subject that you choose to study. So the Protestant reformers come along at a time period in history where they have said, you know what? This whole wolf in sheep's clothing, this, ref this Roman thing, it's not something we believe has authority over us. And the cry of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, by the scripture alone. This is not a new concept today. Most of you have Bibles in your laps. If you don't, there's Gideons in our midst that will get you a Bible. We will give you Bibles free of charge. The men who provided them in your languages, though, were burned on their printing presses for printing them. Because the same spirit that was behind Romulus and Remus that killed one brother in a religious dispute has been behind the power of Rome always. Dissension is not allowed. There's one universal religion and everybody else. Well, pick up a history book. As the Protestants began to get the Word of God in their own languages, something happened. They went, this whole feast calendar that we have, this whole idea that we have seems wrong. I don't find it in the Bible. Much like me, the first time I read, actually read, not heard somebody, but read for myself the Bible, I took out a pen and I wrote next to it, question marks. I said, what on earth is that? Paul said, these things must be done and I've never seen them. And I've been in church all my life. And I went straight to my pastor who told me, don't worry about it. Stay where the money is. And I had a choice to make. Did you think the spirit of Rome only extended to the Roman church? It's any spirit that distorts the truth. So the Scotch Presbyterians, God love them, have a love for the Word of God. Stoked by guys like Calvin. And they banned Christmas in 1583. <laughs> they said, you know what? This whole thing are remnants of that Roman garbage and we don't want it. You know how long it stayed banned for? You won't believe this. Until 1958. You know why they changed it in 1958? They couldn't get their adherents to follow it. People wanted to party this time of year. And so they gave up. Now they banned it in 1583 but it was practiced anyway. What would happen right now if I said to gain admission into this grand, into this 
compacted center, you had to stop celebrating Christmas. You'd go, sure, right? Go home, celebrate Christmas. Oliver Cromwell is a political leader in England's history. But he was a Puritan and influenced by the Puritans. you know where the Puritans get their name? We need to purify Christianity. It's been infested with this disease of the Romans. And from 1653 to 1660, he banned not only Christmas, but Christmas trees, decorations, and gift-giving in England. But he gave up. It didn't work. So all that is in other places so far away. Our pilgrim fathers, right? They came over, now my kids aren't in here, on the Nina, Santa Maria. Yeah, you got it, those things. Not the bean burrito, but the ship. They banded in Massachusetts for 22 years, 1659 to 1681. So what is the answer, saints? Do we need to throw away Christmas because it has unholy roots? How many of you thought that the unholy part of Christmas was Santa Claus? And the holy part was the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Now, you knew in the back of your mind, you've heard somewhere that Jesus wasn't really born in December, but did it matter to you? Not really, because you're still worshiping Jesus, right? So, Eric, what is your point? I want to turn this a little bit, let you see this gem from another side. There's not anything about December and traditional Christmas that's holy. You know what is holy? The fat guy in the red suit. Because he was born, Dave, this will be part seven, Santa saves Christmas. He was born during the reign of the Caesars. By the way, Christmas, right? This is the Christ Mass. For you and I, we celebrate Christmas the day that Jesus was born. Well, he wasn't really born that day. It's okay. We're going to celebrate it that day anyway. That's not what it was instituted as. It was instituted as the day you take away for that becomes Jesus' body in your mouth and you eat him so that he will be inside of you producing salvation. You ever thought of it like that? Not many of you. Watch TV around Christmas. You'll get to see people dressed like emperors, not in mangers, but on marble floors like the Senate, eating Jesus today. You ever hear the word hocus pocus? Hocus pocus? The reformers made that up. They're making fun of a Latin phrase that says the bread becomes flesh. They called it hocus pocus, magic. We prefer the term communion, a day in which we commune with our God. We remember his sacrifice, a day we commemorate the sacrifice, not relive the whole bloody ordeal. Why did we get that idea? Because we can read the Bible in our own language. We're not dependent upon somebody who is distorting the truth to extort us. We can read that Hebrews says he was sacrificed once for all time. And then when somebody tells us, no, no, he's being sacrificed perpetually right here, we go, solo scriptura. That is if you read it and you knew that it said that. So what on earth is worth celebrating about Christmas? I say it's Santa Claus. Santa, before he had the name Santa, had the name Nicholas. You know where Nicholas was born? You got it. Turkey. Seems like we should have Thanksgiving at a different time, huh? Turkey. He was born in modern Turkey in the year 245 A.D. 
He lived into 343 A.D. When you think about that, that means his lifetime encompassed all of Constantine's reign. He was there during the transition when the wolf put on the sheep's clothing. What a difficult time to live in. You've been in love with Jesus all of your life. You're used to being under the oppression of the state, but now the state says, we're going to tolerate you. We love you, man. Just do it like I tell you, you hear? If you think that's only Romanism, if you think that is only Romanism, go into any denominational church today and tell them anything that they don't agree with. Oh, they may not burn you at a post because that's become less politically expedient, but they'll give you a look that shows you what they really think. He was born in modern Turkey in the area of ancient Ephesus. His life spanned that Constantinian transition, and he attended, history records, the first church councils. Now, not the one in 431, because he was dead, but the one in 325, where we get the Apostles' Creed. History reports that he was a righteous voice in that meeting, fighting for the deity of Christ and none other. Santa saves Christmas. Dave, last time you have to write on the board, it's the eighth point, St. Nicholas. When the man Nicholas becomes a saint, it occurs in this way. By the way, saint. Saint. The word saint. comes from sanctified. There is a Roman machine that teaches you that they have to declare you a saint. In reality, the Bible declares all believers in Jesus to be saints. That authority is not given to any man. It is God's alone. And when he sanctifies you, you are a saint. By the way, Paul said that to the Ephesian elders on that beach. Anybody here alive in 1969? <laughs> Lots of you, but Steve raised his hand first. Steve was alive the day that a man who claimed to be the head of the church stood up and made a proclamation that is ex cathedra, that is as if God were speaking above the scriptures, beyond contestation. And you know what he did? He de-sainted 900 people that had been venerated as saints. I don't make this stuff up, friends. You can find that in Wikipedia or any decent encyclopedia. That means that for 1900 and some odd years, these people had been viewed as saints. Little bobbleheads on the dashboard. But in 1969, because a man said so, they were no longer saints. You show me in the scripture where one institution has the right to call some saints and others not saints. I'm a saint because I'm a believer in Jesus. Saint Nicholas. How does he make the transformation from Nicholas to St. Nicholas. Well, he was the son of wealthy merchants and fishermen. And they died. And after his parents died, he became the manager of a fishing fleet. Fleet of fishing vessels. During his normal daily affairs, out on boats, managing this fleet, he came across men who had drowned or were drowning and he risked his life to save theirs. That's noble in and of itself, but the reason that he did it was because he was in love with Jesus. Legend tells us that he didn't just save their lives, 
He spent the next few months with them teaching them about Jesus so that he could save their souls. Anybody seen the movie advertised Sweeney Todd? What a strange, strange concept. Nobody's seen that advertised? Is it Johnny Depp? Is that who it is? Johnny Depp, very popular actor. This is an English fairy tale about a man who butchers other people, much like Jack the Ripper. I couldn't figure out why on earth was this being shown at Christmas. But nothing surprises me about the depravity of Hollywood, so I just dismissed it. This morning studying, I found out why. St. Nicholas, living in modern-day Turkey, back then Ephesus, the actual area was Myra, was said to have come across a man who killed three children. And he was a butcher by profession. And he was so grieved at the injustice that he prayed for them and raised them from the dead. That butcher and the story of the butcher became the legend of Sweeney Todd that was told to children at Christmas time in England. But none of these miracles are why you know Santa as Santa. The best. The best it could be. He finds a man in his hometown who has three daughters. And the man has no money for dowries for these daughters. And during this time, remember we're in the 300s, when a husband, or I'm sorry, a father, had no money to provide as dowries for his daughters to be married, they usually went unwed. And when women were unwed, their employment opportunities were slim. Usually they were destined for a life of prostitution. And Nicholas was so in love with Jesus that when he heard of this, he was moved. But he remembered Jesus' words that when we do acts of righteousness, we don't do them for men to see, we do them for God to see. So he threw money when one of the oldest daughters came to age, gold coins, into an open window, and she got married off. Well, rumor of this began to spread around town, and people started to do something. They started to leave their windows open. <laughs> and apparently, he didn't want to be associated with that, but when the second daughter came of age and was facing a life of prostitution, He's supposed to have thrown money through the chimney so that it wouldn't be associated with the first act. So that daughter gets married off, and you know what all the people began to do? They were drying their socks by the fire anyway, but now they became stockings, and they hung them on the mantle of the fireplace, hoping to catch the gold that came down the chimney. Christians have always been a very strange bunch. We claim to be separate from the world, but we follow every fad that has ever come along. This one week it's holy laughter. Another week it's, I hate to even name them, they're shameful. Legend has it that the third daughter came time to be married and had a stocking hanging by the fire and gold fell into the stocking. Now, as you begin to think about this, remember people's natural tendency towards syncretism. We had Roman practices going on and we just changed their names so that they seemed Christians. Well, the same thing happened with St. Nicholas. He was a man who lived in Turkey. And because he became known as a bishop, a religious leader in the area, and their garments were usually red to show that they were, oh, I don't know, today they're named after birds, but, you know, 
to show that they were religious leaders, as history went on and the stories began to be told to everyone, he always had on red garments. And it seems that he would sit several times a year and pray for the children. And he would put them in his lap and pray for them over their future. They weren't telling Santa what they wanted for Christmas. They were telling St. Nicholas what their prayer requests were, and he was prophesying to them about their futures. But as these stories got told and the story spread throughout the empire, much like Buddhism or any other thing, Siddhartha was a man who was a Hindu. He was born as a Hindu in India. But by the time that story reaches all the way through the furthest parts of Asia, he's a fat Asian. Jesus, born a Jew. But by the time it stretches all the way to America, he's Jeffrey Hunter. He's a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Viking-looking Jesus. And in our time, occasionally, in some groups, an African-American Jesus. We have a tendency to form things into the image that best suits us rather than the image that it really is. Well, what happened then is if you heard about St. Nicholas but lived in a cold climate, Instead of a light linen red gown, he had on a furry red winter suit. Do you understand how the evolution of this story? Now, when you're telling children that St. Nicholas prayed for children and prophesied over their futures, and he didn't exist in your day, it became customary for somebody to dress up like St. Nicholas and come in and pray and prophesy over the kids. This is a Jesus thing. But when they began talking about stockings hanging from fireplaces, and if you love Jesus, good things will show up in your stockings, kids in snowed-in places wanted to know, how does he get here? And some inventive parent said, well, he rides a sleigh and has reindeer. And as time goes on, people like our department stores in the 50s add things like Frosty and Rudolph. And the story continues to unfold, but what we need to remember, saints, is that it started with one man during the most tumultuous time period in Christian history deciding to be a real Christian. And it was so unusual that it has become the stuff legends are made of. The Apostle Paul says that we should shine like stars hanging in the heavens because of the good deeds that God has inspired in us. When Christians act as real Christians, it's the stuff legends are made of. Turn with me to Titus. We'll read two scriptures. I have a couple more ideas I want to share with you, and then we'll move to close. Don't you love that we have a book of the Bible named Titus? Titus was not the Titus in the Bible, but Titus was the name of an incredible Roman conqueror. He destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., some people called him a beast. He was mortally wounded in battle. But after three days, he got up again. History is interesting. It helps you interpret the Bible, too. Are you in the book of Titus? This Titus is a man that Paul is writing to. In Titus 1.15, we find these words. To the pure, all things are pure. 
But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. I'm suggesting that when we look at corrupted images of Santa Claus and wonder what they have to do with nativity scenes, we can find pureness in it. And if you can hang a Christmas tree in your house, as I've done, in the month of December, and not celebrate eating Jesus, but celebrate the day that he was given to the world. By the way, the early church never, never celebrated that. They celebrated his death and resurrection. You'll find no record of celebration of his birth. But it's still a noble idea. And if we can do that, then surely we can find room in our hearts for some of these other things that our children so delight in. All bands of the idea have never worked. Why don't we take a different approach? Instead of telling our kids that Santa is just a jolly old fat guy who your parents want to eat cookies with when he comes down the chimney, why don't we tell him that he's a man who is wholeheartedly in love with Jesus, who does good things for people because of his love for Jesus? I had intended to read this to you first, but I'm going to go ahead and read it to you anyway. It's in 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of good teaching that you have followed. Saints, I want to avoid whatever is evil. I know that some of the things that we said today had the potential to step on your toes. If you're concerned about any of the facts that we mentioned today, Google them. Google any of the dates. Google any of the battles. Any of the traditions of Rome. And you'll find out that it's well documented in history. But wherever you stand with your personal beliefs about churches seated in the United Nations, or churches on the corner, or this church. What you need to come face to face with is that men and women were created to be in love with our King Jesus. And when that happens, regardless of the system that it happens in, when that true thing happens, the results are legendary, and they're worth celebrating. Changed lives occur. Hope is imparted to the whole world. I would argue that it can't come through a political process, through the machinery of a governmental institution that's lifeless, that the Word of God has always advanced through the living organism of His real church, which just happens often to be subterranean because it never gets along well with the other governments in the world. They're of different spirits. But whatever you think of my history lesson this morning, what you need to consider is, how are you living? And is it the stuff of legends, or is it a myth? Have you lied to yourself and everyone else? 
Has your faith been such a private matter that no one knows of its existence, even God? Or has it been lived out loud, boldly, for the world to see that others might be inspired by what God's done in you? I think Christmas is a time for men and women to be courageous, to stand up and celebrate men and women who have loved Jesus throughout the centuries, to celebrate not the birth of the Messiah, but the life that He lived. It's a time for us to imitate their character. It's a time for us to find good in anything that we can and point it out and teach our kids. Or we could go on every year the same. Opening gifts, not knowing why. Appealing to greed. Paying the practitioners of Augustus to absolve us of our sins. I would rather find the real peace and joy that comes from Yeshua, the Hamashiach. Y'all stand up and let's pray.